Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and penis metaphor, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar and car guy, guy with a car, Noelle LaCroix. <laughs> and we're here today to talk about The Zeppo, the 13th episode of season three. The Zeppo aired on January 26, 1999 and was written by Dan Weber and directed by James Whitmore Jr. You should know that we are a fully spoiled Buffy podcast. That is right. We are going to talk about everything and anything as it comes up. So if you haven't seen the whole series or you're spoiler sensitive, this is not the podcast for you until, you know, you spend a couple weeks just binging all of Buffy. <laughs> we open every episode telling people, don't listen to this one. Don't listen to, you know what? Don't listen to this podcast. This is just not, ruin it. it's not worth it. It'll ruin it. Unless you're not spoiler sensitive and then, you know. Welcome on or board. Or you've already seen every episode yeah. of it multiple times, which I think is the vast majority of our audience. Or you get 80 <laughs> episodes into Still Pretty and you're like, oh, holy shit, they're going to talk right. about everything? <laughs> what the? <laughs> Whoa. All right. Don't worry. I'll steer you around the curves. Let's go on patrol. Zeppo, the Scoobies take down a horde of vampires. Well, everyone except Xander, who gets knocked out pretty early in the fight and is told to maybe hang back in the fights in the future. At school, Xander tries to connect with guys tossing a football and accidentally crashes into Jack O'Toole, a full-grown stereotype of the high school bad seed. After he threatens Xander, Cordelia comments on Xander's role in the world, or lack thereof. I happen to be an integral part of that group. Integral part of the group? Xander, you're the, the useless part of the group. You're the Zeppo. Xander talks with Oz and tries to figure out why he's not getting the sexual attention from women to which he is clearly entitled. Oz tries carefully to talk sense to him, but Xander decides that he just needs to find his thing. Meanwhile, the demonic apocalypse cult, the Sisterhood of Jay, is planning to open the Hellmouth, and things are looking seriously scary on Apocalypse Watch 99. Buffy's scared and needs Willow at her side, and when Xander drives up in his thing, a 57 Chevy Bel Air convertible, Buffy has an important job for him to do. It's like two glazed, two cinnamon, a couple cream filled, and a jelly. No, no, let's run that after four jellies. Ooh, some evil going on. Must be big for them to entrust you with this daredevil mission. Right off that interaction with Cordelia, a cute girl admires Xander's car, and he offers to give her a ride. They go to the bronze, and she rattles on about cars so much that Xander jumps when Angel comes in looking for Buffy, preferring to go do apocalypse stuff than hang out with this chick for one more minute. Angel says it's best that Xander stay out of the way, where he's safe. Later, as he's leaving the bronze with nameless car girl and ranting about being unappreciated, he bumps into the car parked in front of him, and of course, it belongs to Jack O'Toole. And of course, the psychopath cliche pulls out an unreasonably large knife, and of course, this isn't a penis metaphor. Silly. Where do you want it? I'm fairly certain I don't want it at all, but uh, thank you. Okay, maybe it's a penis metaphor. When the cops come as Jack threatens Xander and Xander doesn't tell on Jack, Jack decides that Xander is cool. He has Xander drive him and Car Girl to the graveyard where he raises his dead friends. Car Girl screams and runs away, good riddance, and Jack and his dead crew co-op Xander as their wheelman. In one of the cemeteries, Xander bumps into Giles, who is trying to get more information on the rising danger, which is rising and very dangerous. <laughs> Something different about this 
Man, there's something in the air. Stench of death. Yeah, I think it's Bob. Jack and his dead crew make Xander drive them to the hardware store, where they break in to get the ingredients to bake a cake, whatever that means. Xander sees Willow coming from the magic shop and wants to know what's going on, but Willow's too freaked out about the end of the world to stay in chat. Xander decides to go after her and help, but Jack stops him. Xander doesn't feel like he's part of the group. No, it's just I'm kind of busy. He doesn't feel like part of the group because he hasn't been initiated. Do you think he's ready? Great. I want to be in the gang, sure. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> what do I got to do? Gotta die. As the gang threatens Xander, he jumps into the car and drives off, then comes up on Faith fighting with a demon. He smashes into the demon with his car, then grabs Faith and drives off. They go back to Faith's motel room, and Faith has a reaction to all that fighting and no kill. She needs some satisfaction. She throws Xander down on the bed and has her way with him. And then... That was great. I got a shower. Xander goes out to his car, finds the stuff Jack's gang stole from the hardware store, and realizes that they're not baking a cake. He finds Buffy in a melodramatic moment with Angel and senses it's a bad time. He offers to help, but they send him away. He finds the dead guys and grabs one and drags him alongside the car to get information, but then re-kills him by accidentally knocking his head off with a mailbox. At the school, the Hellmouth tentacle monster breaks through the floor and everyone is ready to fight. Everyone except Xander, who is being chased through the school by Jack and his dead guy gang. Xander manages to take out the dead guys one by one until he meets up with Jack in the basement, where a bomb is ticking away. I know what you're thinking. Can I get by him? Get upstairs, out of the building, seconds ticking away. I don't love your chances. Then you'll die too. Yeah, looks like. So I guess the question really is, who has less fear? I'm not afraid to die. I'm already dead. Yeah, but this is different. Being blowed up isn't walking around and drinking with your buddies dead. It's little bits being swept up by a janitor dead, and I don't think you're ready for that. Are you? I like the quiet. Jack disarms the bomb at the last second, and Xander walks away, telling Jack he doesn't want to see him around anymore. Xander leaves, but then Werewolf Oz finds Jack and, well, bye-bye, Jack. The next day at school, the Scoobies process their trauma from the night before, and Xander doesn't tell them about his evening. As he walks away, he bumps, once again, into Cordelia. Oh, look, it's Mr. Excitement. On another life-or-death donut mission, or are we just cruising for bimbos again? Giving them lessons in lack of cool. What? What? All right. So, Noelle, here's the thing about (laughs) the Zeppo is that it is one of those episodes that every time I think of it, I'm like, yeah, that was cute. That was funny. And I never really think there's much there. So just, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit here at Chipperish Media. um, I wake up every Sunday morning without having done a thing for Still Pretty. And we record at 11 o'clock my time, right? So I wake up in the morning and I watch the episode because I've seen these episodes like a thousand times each, you know, and then I make my little notes and I do my little thing. And I usually make it, you know, relatively on time for a given value of, you know, on time. And this week I get started and I find myself stopping to take so many notes on the Zeppo. (laughs) 
like, if we're an hour late recording today, all my fault because I had so much to say and I never really thought about this being a densely packed episode, but it kind of is. Noelle, what did you think? Was that your experience with this episode? Well, as you know, I try to watch every episode two or three times before we record sure. because mm-hmm. I'm an overachiever. <laughs> no, because my last rewatch of the entire series was uh, much longer ago than yours. So yes. I like to, you know, jog my memory and then like rejog it just to make sure mm-hmm. that I know what sure. I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And I watched, so I watched the Zeppo through once. You know, I remembered this is, this is the Xander episode yeah. from season three watched it through once and i went oh my god what am i going to talk about like it's you know that's fine there's stuff watched it through again and holy shit <laughs> like there's so much <laughs> there's so much stuff in this episode and there are so many like little i don't i don't want to call them like understated but you know it's very it's very campy in a lot of ways yeah. but there are these little quiet moments that just kind of are a little bit gut-wrenching when you think about them. So, I mean, we'll get there when we get there, but there's a lot here. So I've had this kind of reaction to Xander. Like, I love Xander. I think Xander's wonderful, and I remember him really fondly when I think back to the show. But then, as we've been discussing, you know, um, in uh, in Still Pretty, he's problematic in a lot of ways. And we have light Xander, and we have shadow Xander. And there's been a lot of issues with him. Um, so at times, I love him, and at times, I want to smack him in the head. <laughs> and I, I've never really thought about, like, the pivotal point that the Zeppelin I think plays in that progression of Xander that post Zeppo Xander, I think is the Xander that I love, you know, Mm -hmm. for the most part, he's still got a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still going to be a lot of issues with Xander in the future. But I feel like pre Zeppo Xander is more shadow Xander than post Zeppo Xander. And I'm not sure. And I love saying that. That's actually kind of fun. Post Zeppo Xander. I want to I want to make a like, you know, an alcoholic drink, like a cocktail uh, called post Xander. <laughs> but um, but I think that there may be something to that. So I'm going to keep an eye out to see if like the Shadow Xander that we get, I think maybe a different a different brand of Shadow Xander. Yeah, uh, but it's not quite the same as it was before the Zeppo. I feel like it is a turning point in the series for Xander. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I don't. Like, I can't say definitively that post Zeppo Xander, that is fun to say. It is <laughs> you know? fun, right? Like, yeah, I can't, like, nothing is springing to mind is like, I'm going to point this out as a true, you know, hard example of Xander being changed. But he's definitely changed at the end of the episode. Like, yeah, no, we see him go through a whole arc in this episode, and we see it through a three beat, a Cordelia three beat. I love which the I Cordelia really love. Three beat. I love Cordelia showing up as like not quite the narrator, but almost. Yeah. You know, well, she's kind of the thread that pulls it all together. I think that she is the source of, or not the source, but like a representation of the things that Xander knows are wrong with him <laughs> like yeah. she sees it and she points it out and she directly pokes at the sources of his vulnerability and so i think that she as a representation of his ability to deal with his own self-doubt you know his own lack of confidence and lack of belief in not just his abilities but his essential value mm-hmm. um i think that they use her beautifully 
for that in this episode. Um, the three beat is is wonderfully executed. And we do see that progression with him. And at the end, his ability to walk away from her saying nothing with just a smile on his face. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she brings us kind of if we want to say what this episode is about, capital A about, I mean, it's right. Cordelia kind of brings us into that space with, mm-hmm. you know, the definition of cool, right? Like, yeah. the you know, Xander's the boy who had no cool and she tells him to look yes. it up. And mm-hmm. according to Cordelia, our truth teller, Psycho is cooler than wuss, which I think is very interesting, which, of course, then sets off that whole, you know, Rube Goldberg machine of insecurity that is Xander in his scene with Oz. You know, what is the essence of cool? And he's just on. He's processing out loud and on and on and on. And Oz is, you know, his Ozzy self, Mm -hmm. you know, Xander, what is the essence of cool? Not sure. (laughs) It's so great. (laughs) It's so great. But Oz, of course is absolutely the very definition of cool. And, you know, what cool, I think, actually is, you know, in its in its ultimate expression, right, is that sense of pure security in yourself that Oz has, right? And Oz has always had that. He is amazing. I want a bracelet that says, what would Oz do to remind me <laughs> to be secure in myself? Like, Oz does not have the kind of essential insecurity that like every other human person has. No. Like he knows his value and he doesn't let it take away from anybody else's value. Like he knows that he's great and he's fine and he doesn't have to worry. Um, But he also doesn't take away from anybody else. He doesn't think he's better than anybody else. He just knows his own value, which I think is really, really cool. And he is kind of this, this example set for everybody else on how to behave, how to treat people, how to think, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And then we have him kind of contrasted, you know, with Cordelia, like in the way that Oz, Oz is sitting there comforting and counseling Xander, the guy his girlfriend yeah. cheated on him with. Yeah. Right. And is still best friends with and is, you know, is still like, but he, Oz knows his value and he's decided that he's going to trust Willow, which means that, you know, he's fine. Like he doesn't have anything to prove with Xander. And I right. love that. And then meanwhile, we've got Cordelia on the other side, side who is the one who's defining cool, who's like bringing this as a concept that Xander needs to live up to, and yet has absolutely no cool of her own because here she is trying to take down Xander in any way that she can. Because he hurt her. Yeah. You know, and she's still vulnerable to him. So when she says anything to Xander, it's completely in that light. Meanwhile, we've got Oz on the other side of that, who was treated the same way. He was on the other side of the same thing that happened to Cordelia. And he not only isn't beating up Willow about it, he's not beating up Xander about it. Yeah. Like, he's just, like, chill with it. So Oz is this ultimate example of what cool actually is. And it is something that does not claim coolness. Right. It just is. It's just a lack of that essential insecurity that creates most asshole behavior. Right. And self-knowledge. Like, yeah, Oz doesn't, you know, Xander is searching for his thing. What is my thing? And Oz mm-hmm. doesn't have that, that concern. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't need a thing. He doesn't need a thing because he is he at least he seems to be really, really at peace with 
who he is. Now, you yeah. know, later on, we'll see that get shaken up a little bit as Oz has to right, confront, you know, four. being a werewolf mm-hmm. and like what it means to be a werewolf. But Oz as human Oz, as his, you know, mm-hmm. usual Ozzy self is yeah. a very detached from the drama that's going on around him because Mm -hmm. it doesn't shake his foundation at all. Whereas poor Xander is just rattled by like literally everything that happens completely Uh rattles Xander to his core. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like, it's really sad. Like that was where I got with this episode ultimately was like, Xander is really like, this is kind of a sad episode for Xander. Like I feel for him in this very, this way that I did not expect to. Um, Right. Because ultimately Xander is cool in the most heartbreaking way. Mm -hmm. When Jack says, you know, are you ready to die? And Xander says, I like the quiet. Oh, yeah. That's just gut-wrenching. That's gut-wrenching. Right. I mean, so Xander, I mean, Xander and O'Toole give us mm-hmm. this really interesting and maybe problematic dynamic that I want to explore yeah. a little bit. Because mm-hmm. we've heard several times about Xander's family. And yeah. the off-screen picture that we get is very much a picture of blue collar struggle and pain. I mean, there's trouble with money and the law and alcohol and just regular human connection. I mean, Xander's mother doesn't recognize him over the phone. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is part of what makes Xander the least meaningful member of the group. He's the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, Mm -hmm. And one way to give Xander some hero clout in the story is to make Jack O'Toole even lower status than Xander. And now we're talking about Mm -hmm. class, right? So Jack talks about his grandpappy, Mm -hmm. which conjures up a very specific image of a particular kind of Southern grandfather. Jack's go-to conflict resolution device is his hunting knife. You know, and when he says he's going to carve, he's, he tells Xander, I'm going to carve you up and serve you with gravy. It's mm-hmm. like we're very much coding Jack O'Toole as poor white. Um, yes. And class wise, he and Xander are closer to being peers than Xander and any of the other or any of the Scoobies. Sure. So mm-hmm. it almost seems to suggest that under different circumstances, Xander could have become a Jack O'Toole. In that search yeah. for community and connection, he could have gone this much darker route of um, crime and violence and mm-hmm. this this particularly um, toxic kind of toxic masculinity, you know, where they're driving around town screaming about beer and girls. It's yeah. very, mm-hmm. very uh, stereotypical. And it's very much mm-hmm. tied to gender and and gender roles and class. And I think that's right. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, it also brings us to this nature versus nurture, this very like binary thinking that we really have. Oh, yeah. Really, there's a spectrum of that. Um, but where has Xander's nurture been? 
You know, like it clearly doesn't come from his family. And I also like the fact that this car that he has is not his car. It's his Uncle Rory's car. And Uncle Rory is the one that we reference when we have a story to tell about Xander's terrible family. Right. Like he doesn't really necessarily tell stories about his dad very much, but like he will mention Uncle Rory. (laughs) He will mention Uncle Rory, quiet taxidermist by day, but at night it was booze, whores, and fur flying, right? You know? (laughs) Um, So here we have this car that is essentially borrowed cool that comes from exactly his background. But I mean, it's like this is a 57 like Bel Air Chevy, right? Yeah. Convertible car, obviously very well maintained. Yeah. Like, this is the kind of car that you would expect to drive out of Jay Leno's garage, <laughs> you know, not Uncle Rory's. So uh, so I'm not sure what the story is behind this car, but I'm sure it's fascinating. Um, but they do kind of come from this same space. But if you look at Xander and Jack, like, what is it that essentially separates them? And I mean, I think with Xander, it comes down to a sense of um, of empathy you know, of of honor, of kindness, you know, and Jack just lacks all of that. Um, but, you know, is it is it that, you know, do we have a similar instance with Xander that we had with Buffy and the Wish, right? Without their friends, without this group of friends holding them together, would they all have had different darker fates? Now, of course, in the Wish, without Buffy, Xander becomes a vampire. So we know the answer to that. He essentially does become Jack O'Toole. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the performance that this guy is given in this episode is not a million miles off from what Nicholas Brennan was doing in The Wish. Yeah. Yeah. With Vampire Xander. Yeah. Vampire Xander and Jack O'Toole actually have a lot in common. They do. In that. So I guess it's just about the effectiveness of the soul. Right. You know, Um, and the community and community as a saving grace, which I think is a theme that Buffy actually comes back to you know, quite a bit. Oh, for sure. Um, Yeah. But there were a couple of things in here that I thought were really kind of interesting. Um, And, you know, coming into this discussion with Xander and his need for cool and the, you know, kind of reflection with Jack O'Toole. um, And I came across like kind of a really uncomfortable idea because this is a concept that I'm highly, highly made uncomfortable by. Um, and the idea that Xander is kind of a proto-incel mm. at the beginning of this episode, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, incel, by the way, is a highly offensive concept, I think, in general. Um, and the people who self-identify as incels also are, are truly, truly in a, a offensive. But it's this idea that some, uh, you know, you'll find these kind of like right-wing uh, you know, spaces on the internet um, where people will talk about men, will talk about being involuntarily celibate, mm-hmm. um, that they have not chosen to be celibate because women refuse to sleep with them. Uh, they are very, very angry about that um, and feel entitled to women's bodies. And there is a lot of very, very dangerous, disturbing things. I do not recommend looking up incel on the internet. (laughs) Um, Absolutely do not recommend it. It is highly, highly disturbing. Um, But here we have Xander. We've talked a lot about Xander's sense of entitlement to women. Uh, Early, you know, in season one, he had a crush on Buffy and he felt very entitled to her affections. I guess a guy has to be undead to make time with you, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we see him using phrases that that sort of speak to that sense of entitlement. We have this, uh, he's complaining about, you know, how you need to be in a band, you need to have a thing, but he played the flugelhorn and got zero trim, right? Is that an expression? 
Like I have. I think it is. Okay. I think or I've was heard it that inexpr- before. I had never. I'm not conscious of having heard that before, but. I don't know. It's possible that I've just heard it so much in this episode, having watched this so much that I've associated it and, and through context. And maybe it, maybe it was like trying to make Fetch happen. Maybe, maybe they just put it in there. And this is like, you know, the uh, the Buffy version of Fetch. It just yeah. didn't happen. But I know what it means. Totally. Right? We've heard that kind of construction around women yeah. as objects, conquest, um, you know, and, and something that he he gets and receives as opposed to having a relationship. Right. You know, with someone in which there is mutual sexual exploration and satisfaction. Um, he is talking about it as something that is given to him. Like he gets it, you know, zero trim. Um, and so like, first of all, like the line itself is funny. Yes. First of all, the flugelhorn, flugelhorn, never not funny. Yeah. That's just in funniest, and of itself. Never funniest not funny. instrument. Good job. It is a funny. <laughs> it's a funny name for an instrument. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. Um, and the phrase zero trim is kind of funny. <laughs> when yeah. you take it out of its really horrifying, dehumanizing context to women, it's just kind of a funny way of expressing that. So, like, I appreciate that it was it was played for humor, um, but the joke rests on some disturbing societal presumptions. First of all, women as objects, that they are trim, you know, yeah. um, and that sexual attention is a service owed to men rather than something shared between people who are in a relationship. Meanwhile, as he's having this discussion, he's having it with Oz, who represents the exact opposite opposite of all of those ideas, you know, and the fact that Oz is in there as something of a mitigating factor for Xander, I find really interesting because Oz, of course, is perfect. He is cool without (laughs) needing to be cool. He has respect for women, especially the woman that he is with. Um, And so it feels like we are actively pointing out this sort of proto-incel attitude um, and looking at it as cute and funny rather than the very truly dangerous thing that it actually is. Because when men feel entitled to something that they don't get, they often feel entitled to take it um, Mm -hmm. or to kill people because of their anger at not having received something that they felt they were entitled Mm to. Um, This is something that we're dealing with, you know, very openly. And, And in the 90s, I think we were still in this space where we we didn't we would look at this stuff and think it was funny because it doesn't really happen like we see this on the fringe but we don't we didn't realize how much that kind of mentality was actually a day-to-day part of the harassment that women receive right or not we didn't realize mainstream culture which is predominantly you know run by white men mm-hmm. um have not did not realize all of them i think at this point that this wasn't funny because this was very very real mm-hmm. you know um and and extremely dangerous um and so so here we have this kind of 90s look from this perspective of people who didn't necessarily mean harm but also didn't realize the kind of harm that was going on uh on a widespread basis because of these very ideas so um so i don't know am i overreacting to xander to this idea of xander as a proto-incel um i don't think so i think that 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 reading is definitely there i think there's Xander Xander is so complicated in his relationship to sex and sexuality because it's clearly yeah. like it's this light motif with Xander. When we're raiding lockers in Gingerbread, he's concerned about the Playboy magazines that he has in his locker. Yes. Like he is freaked mm-hmm. out by 
the notion of being discovered as being even like sexually adjacent. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he is very much motivated by this desire to be sexual, be seen as desirable. And I mean, I think that that's mm-hmm. a very, um, I think that's a very relatable kind of vulnerability, you know, wanting yeah. to mm-hmm. be desired. But he does take it into this very transactional space. A lot of the time, Mm -hmm. Um, which actually relates to something that I noticed in the episode that kind of broke my heart in a really surprising Mm -hmm. to me way, which is this this conflict in Xander of asking for help versus asking to help. You know, he Mm -hmm. says, tell me what I can do. And then, of course, we you know, and then that's played for humor. We cut to the espresso pump where he's picking up donuts he's picking up a donut order and you know very funny but he keeps asking to help do you need any help what can i do when he runs into Mm -hmm. the scoobies when what he really wants and really needs is to receive help yeah but he doesn't Mm -hmm. ask for it he wants to be asked i mean it's very like yeah it's just so heartbreaking that xander wants the people he needs to need him back Mm -hmm. he doesn't he feels he clearly feels very insecure about being so needy about being so starved Mm -hmm. for attention um you know and the way that he (laughs) when he interrupts angel and buffy you know and he's he's trying so hard like he almost gets it out i've got this like he freely he's gone to buffy because he knows she'll know what to do and then he gets there and he just can't say it and he settles on uh-huh. can i help and it <laughs> like my heart kind of breaks for him yeah cuz he can't yeah. like he can't push past that wall of like needing to put up this you know this this wall of like needing to act as though he has no needs Yes. Mm-hmm. It's really, really sad to me. <laughs> I'm just it is. like it kind of it it sort of caught me off guard how sad I found that whole recurring theme with Sander. Yeah. That. Yeah. And I think well, he does. He wants to be wanted. He wants to be needed. And I think that that's a fairly human you know, like relatable thing. Like we all want to have a a role or have a a way that we can serve like the people around us. But like his way of like finding his, his space and his, he says to Cordelia, I'm an integral part of the group. And she's like, whatever, you're the Zeppo, Uh you know? Yeah. And so he's, he's being told over and over and over again, no, we don't need you. You know, we want you away. We want you safe. Go get the donuts. Right. You know? Um, And so that's a really hard thing for him to, I think, have. He wants, like, the help that he's asking for. He is asking for help in saying, can I help? Yeah. You know? Can you use me? Because if you can't, I'm going to be stuck with these dead guys over here. Right. You know? But he, like, the help that he needs is to be needed. And he is constantly told throughout that he is not needed. Um, And that is, like, you know, speaks to his essential insecurity. But the funny thing is is that over with the group of the dead guys, he is needed. He's the wheel man. He comes in with an immediate role to play. Mm -hmm. You know? Which is not something that he he doesn't have a clear role. You know, we've got werewolves and we've got the Watcher (laughs) and we've got the Slayer and we've got the Slayer 
employers and we've got, you know, Willow as the witch and everybody has a role, but Xander doesn't really have a role aside from being the guy who gets, you know, beat up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, um, so it's it's interesting because he really he has that need to be needed. And then like once he realizes where his value is, that he has strength, that he can save the world by himself, because at that moment, had he had Jack succeeded in blowing up the school and Giles and Buffy and Willow and everybody would have then failed to stop the apocalypse, then the school would have blown up, everybody would have died. And, you know, this demon would have taken over the world, right. you know. So he actually is able to kind of kind of get Oz's quiet confidence there at the end. He doesn't need to tell them what he did. Yeah. You know, and it comes right off of Willow's line. The world is never going to know what we did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then they don't know what Xander did. Right. But he knows. And that's what's important. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit um, is this idea of the penis metaphor. Right. Because um, I saw something in this episode this time that somehow I've managed to kind of like either not notice or whistle past, <laughs> past <laughs> but it kind of jumped out at me this time. Uh, Buffy actually kind of calls this out with the uh, with the car. She she actually says, is this a penis metaphor? Right. It's such a delightful line reading. <laughs> Uh, it really is. It really is. Um, but later on, after the bronze, right, you know, when Xander is there with this nameless girl who just loves cars, right, uh, and they're leaving and he bumps into a car that actually does turn out not to be Jack's car. Jack just is there. He's just, I guess, the car he's trying to steal um, at the moment. Yes. And um, and then Jack comes out and he pulls out this knife named for a girl, you know, and we actually have this scene. I've got this clip and I just kind of want to play this. Yeah, great knife. Although I think um, it may technically be a, a sword. She's called Katie. You gave it a girl's name. How very serial killer of you. That's what I think we should be going. Are you scared? Would that make you happy? Your woman looking on, you can't stand up to me. Don't you feel pathetic? Mostly I feel Katie. You know what the difference between you and me is? Again, Katie's bringing to mind. Fear. Who has the least fear? And it has nothing to do with who has the big sharp. Come on. I want to go for a drive. I'm bored. Oh, gee, I'm really sorry my life and death situation isn't exciting enough for you. going on? Nothing. Just wrestling. O'Toole. <laughs> what a surprise. He attack you? No. Just blowing off steam. Two guys wrestling, but not in a gay way. Do it somewhere else, huh? All right, oh, so Xander. that scene. <laughs> king of no right? homo, right? King of... <laughs> uh, no, seriously, but... the king of no homo. But that knife, like, it, it feels like the whole scene, if you read the knife as a penis metaphor, reads so differently. <laughs> it really does. I mean, it really, mm -hmm. really does. And, of course, Jack even 
kind of frames it that way. We didn't hear it in the clip, but the first thing where he says, where do you want it? Yeah, where right. do you want it? Um, where do you want it? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, from the mouths of rapists. I mean, that's really <laughs> right. like that. Really, really sounds like possibly sexually assault-ish. And then Jack makes it about masculinity because he says, with your woman Uh watching, you can't stand it. And just the the gendered nature of this whole exchange that then ends with, but not in a gay way. Right. Is really interesting. And it is really interesting. And then we have that moment later on in the story where um, all the guys are talking about initiating Xander into the club. Yes. Right. <laughs> we'll just make you gay by penetrating you with Jack's very, very big knife. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we get that. Come on, Xander, take it like a man. And. So I don't think that this is deliberate. But again, I'm a big death of the author person. So I don't care if it's deliberate. If I see it, then, you know, it's there. I mean, I think that there is something with the, um, I don't know, like that. It's it's, the homoeroticism. It's a penis metaphor. It's It's the homoeroticism Mm -hmm. of toxic masculinity. Because yes. women in under, you know, under this like toxic masculine umbrella, women are objects. Women mm-hmm. are like consumables, essentially. Right. But men really like all of their love and attention really is for other men. I mean, and we see that yeah. in Jack's gang. We see the way they mm-hmm. are with each other. It's very... Yeah. um you know, it's it's very friendly and very intimate. I mean, they Bob and Jack hug after yeah. Jack raises Bob from the grave. There's this they're palling around. They're very comfortable mm-hmm. with each other. All of the respect and love and admiration under this toxic masculine umbrella is for other men. It's definitely right. there. There is a homo element to it and i say that without mm-hmm. judgment um right you know that that men yeah men consume women men use women but men love and attend to other men yes and that mm-hmm. that is how you have power in this violent you know Really, like, like violent, literally smelly, <laughs> gruesome yeah. gang of, yeah. of you know, masculinity. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. metaphor. It's really, yeah. really interesting. Um, and I think it is really interesting. And it's a great, it's actually a great fit for Xander in that so much of Xander's insecurity is tied to his lack of comfort with his own masculinity. I mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit Mm -hmm. with Shadow Xander, that it's this kind of overcompensation. You know, it's a performing of a hyper-masculinity because he's so insecure about his own Mm -hmm. power and influence. Um, Yes. And I think that we really, you know, Xander has these two choices, right? He's He's got the Scoobies who, when they exclude him... Um, mm-hmm. in order to protect him, the power there is really with the women, our yes. two slayers and Willow, who is the witch. Now we've got mm-hmm. Watcher Giles, you know, 
stand, you know, protecting this unit, right? We we yeah. have this like patriarchal in a good way, Giles, who is ready to die for Willow, but he understands that that's his role. His role as a man, you know, watching over this group is to lay down his life to save Willow and Buffy and Faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other side, you know, our other group here is this group of already dead guys with bombs, as Xander puts it, which yeah. is which I just love. But they're just I mean, to to exist in that kind of a group is to be doomed from the get go. So Xander yeah. Xander really doesn't have a place in either of these groups that are presented in this episode. And mm-hmm. it like again, like I feel I I feel for Xander. I really do, which is yeah. weird. Like I I feel I I'm feeling feelings that right. <laughs> I did not expect to feel, <laughs> but it's a really like when you break it down, it's this really um vulnerable position to be in. Not fitting anywhere. And then at the end of the episode, he walks off alone. He doesn't sit down at the table with the Scoobies. He doesn't try to connect with Cordelia. He walks off by himself Mm -hmm. as this kind of... Right, but he's happy about that, though. Yeah. There's a security in that, that he is able to achieve a confidence because he's faced toxic masculinity, looked it in the eye... And said, do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah. You know, like, and I feel like that for Xander is such a hugely transformative moment Mm -hmm. because he actually gains his confidence as a person and I think as a man because he's faced down like these toxic things that have been kind of hounding him from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I find that really interesting. And the thing is, is that men are like victims of toxic masculinity too you know because this is something that it's not good for anybody toxic masculinity is toxic it's not good for anybody um and the way in which they um they objectify and subjectify other identities you know anything that is not classic white male right um and uh, not that there isn't toxic masculinity and other identity it just becomes complicated by that the the add white supremacy to the patriarchy and you get this very specific brand of toxic masculinity, you know? Um, and uh, so you've got these guys and what they are told and what they are taught is essentially dehumanizing to them as well. And so here we have all of these guys who are dead. They have been killed by their, you know, toxic masculinity yeah. in one way or another, you know, it has killed all of these guys. And yet they're coming back and they're trying to take Xander down with them. He faces them off and actually, you know, um, is is um, is victorious over it. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, when you look at all of that as as this is what the toxic masculinity has done to these people and Xander is not going to let it do it to him. Mm-hmm. It's really such a a strong and hopeful ending, even though he's by himself. He's secure enough in himself. Like throughout this whole thing, he needs to be needed. You know, he has this like need. Mm-hmm. And in the end, he is happy just to be of service when he is needed. Yep. But he's confident in himself, which is something that up until this point, he's never had. Right. So it's kind of a really wonderful ending, I think. Like, I read that as such a powerful ending and strong and happy ending for Xander, who is not going to let toxic masculinity kill him the way it's killed all these other guys. For sure. 
Yeah, and I think it is I think it is a triumphant ending for Xander, but I think it is a tragic ending for men like as a group like that this is how like that there isn't like if you want to be the not toxic guy (laughs) there's not space for you like you have to be secure in yourself which you know we all should be ideally but it's just which is but it's very difficult to do i mean to have that kind of security and not just for men but like for everybody like there's always different things that like kind of hit us with insecurity which is why oz is so weird Yes. You know, he's wonderful. I love him, but he's, he's weird. He's super weird. You know? He's also yeah. he's also a werewolf. I mean, we've yeah. talked about mm-hmm. this before about how we have yeah. to undercut Oz's, you know, non-toxic masculinity, his cool, whatever that is, right. with this literal By like giving he is a wild literal fury. monster. He is a feral yeah. He Thing. ate Jack. I know. He ate Jack. No, I'm weirdly full today. I know. And that's the joke, right? Yeah. I mean, Oz actually ate toxic masculinity for lunch. Yep. Like, that's the thing. Oz, as the representation <laughs> of positive, healthy, secure masculinity, ate toxic masculinity for yeah. lunch. It's, I mean, there you go. It's wild. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's interesting to me that in this episode where we have this gang of you know, already dead guys with bombs, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which should, that is someone's band, right? Please tell me that right. someone's band. Dead guys with bombs, dead guys, I'm sure. Already dead guys with bombs. I'm sure, <laughs> yes. Or, or a podcast name. Like the whole, like, that's my band name has kind of been subsumed into that's my podcast. Oh, totally. You know, show name. Yes, there's my podcast. <laughs> that's someone's podcast. Right. Um. So, on the you know, on the one side we have, we have zombie bros. And on the other mm-hmm. side, we've got these female demons which is no the female demons were interesting too yep in this episode that is very much from xander's point of view um i love i love the shot sequence that brings us into the episode i haven't Mm -hmm. talked much about the directorial choices in this episode but i have there are a couple of moments that are really spectacular and i think this opening is one of them because we have you know, there's like this mist because we're in this demon lair and it's kind of fantasy spooky mm-hmm. and we've got Faith lurking in the shadows and we've got Buffy and we've got Giles <laughs> and then Willow <laughs> steps out with the candle and says something in Latin and then there's this yes. demon, this this girl demon. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. the first month, one of my first notes is is a feminine sounding scream <laughs> from the demon right. like the the demon bellow <laughs> is very is is even very feminine right. um, but this is unusual i mean we have this kind of there's this like romantic sort of fog around this mostly girl group fighting yeah this girl group of demons and yes I think it's fascinating that like the 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 threat, the thing that's going to open the hellmouth is scary women in this episode. The real power is female. Yeah, in this episode that the is about real power is female. Xander's point of view. That well, and that is interesting because we don't often have demons coded as female. If if we if anything, demons tend to be masculine in presentation mm-hmm. because they're powerful and dangerous and all of that. Um, but but we we haven't usually like if if anything we've like not gendered them, you know. Right. They, but they always kind of like are masculine in presentation. Right. Um, and to have 
female coded demons, it doesn't happen very often. And when it does happen, we absolutely call it out that these are women, you know. But here we have this whole like, you know, we have Xander in this protagonist sidecar. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of interesting because um, because his story, if you look at it, is, you know, clearly smaller than the story that Buffy and Faith and Willow and Giles are in, mm-hmm. you know, Um they're battling this this huge apocalyptic thing. Everybody's freaking freaked out. <laughs> they're afraid of what is happening. It is so big and it is going to destroy the world, you know, and Xander's in this space where his story is is much smaller, you know, and usually when we have the main story, you know, in in any particular episode, um, it's the one with the most dramatic weight, the one with the biggest consequences, the one with the the largest stakes, right? Um, But Xander is actually like battling toxic masculinity, which is a huge like internal battle for him that he's been facing all the time. And it's, it's actually externalized through the form of Jack and his dead friends, you know, the zombie bros Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's really interesting because what makes a protagonist is pov character um that they are they're in pursuit of an active goal you know um and that so they're providing the motive force for the story in pursuit of that goal um and that they are they have the most at stake you know and so while we have all of this stuff externally happening what is actually at stake for xander is his sense of self Mm -hmm. So we are battling that through externalized characters, but it is a very internal story for Xander. Um, so it's really kind of fun to see him in this protagonist sidecar where you would look at what's happening with everybody else as, as the story with the most dramatic weight. But we are so deep inside Xander's POV that what has the most dramatic weight is actually his internal struggle with his own masculinity. And I kind of love the way that they've done that. And then, of course, to do that in the background with this these female code demons who are actually truly the most dangerous things that we've come up against based on what we're seeing from you know all of the other uh characters you know willie the snitch is beat up and he says i suggest you an angel just go away for an evening think how you want to spend your last hours (laughs) giles is freaking out talking to some kind of you know spiritual entity at the um at the cemetery no 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 xander you stay out of this you know We've got all of this stuff. Um, it is, it's so interesting. And I think just a really like brilliant choice to have the most danger come from this feminine side of the story. Um, while this, this wrestling with the toxic masculinity is a different kind of danger, but also something that in the end, had Xander not, you know, not won that battle, would have ended up destroying everything. Mm-hmm. You know, because it has such an incredible power for destruction, even while there's other stuff happening on the side, you know, that is that is, you know, I think what you would look at it if you're if you're comparing, you know, apocalypses um, <laughs> is more important is a bigger deal. Yeah. You know, yeah. but because of the essential wild entitled destructiveness of this toxic masculinity that could end up setting a fire that just makes everything worse for everybody. So I love all of this. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> I love and I I I think it's kind of hilarious that as our first real group of 
female demons, the Sisterhood of Jay, yeah. are an apocalypse cult. Like they they exist. I think Giles says they exist solely to bring about the world's destruction. Like I just love, right. I love the the um like the anti feminism of that. The like yes, <laughs> like you know the tr- the trouble with like groups of women together is that they will bring about the exactly. world's destruction. Is that they will bring a but I mean, from the perspective of toxic masculinity, isn't that what they're afraid oh, of? Totally. Women who gather together, women with any kind of power, the fact that women go to the bathroom together <laughs> freaks guys out. Like the whole thing. Yeah. If there are women, and you know, and it's it's so, and it's funny because like over on uh, Welcome to the End Times, which is the Good Omens podcast that I'm doing with Dr. Kelly Jones, right? Yes. We're, we're discussing uh, Good Omens, the book, and then we're discussing the TV show. So much fun. But we're having all of these discussions about they've got this Witchfinders army, right? Right. And, you know, and we've got to find the witches and we've got to kill the witches. And it's actually hugely, hugely uh, uh, misogynistic. I, I, not the book itself. Yeah. But this... They are representing things in the book that are in and of themselves. The whole witch thing yep. is hugely misogynistic. It's about, you know, making sure that women never uh, have enough time to, like, understand their power or that women don't fight back. Yeah, the the witch thing is about knowledge and power. I mean, the word witch is related to the word wisdom. Like, it's about Mm -hmm. knowledge and power. So, yeah, yeah, a witch hunt is absolutely about keeping women in their place. It's, It's air quotes. It's about, exactly, it's about keeping women in their place. And right now we're doing that through abortion laws. So we'll do it in one way or another, no matter what. The patriarchy must keep women in their place. Right? Um, And that is the battle that's, you know, at hand. So to have these powerful women represented as the true danger in a story that is essentially about Xander's internal battle with his own toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. I think is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> and I love I love that we hear several times that these that the Sisterhood of Jay, um, in addition to being, you know, set on destroying the world, are also super tough. Yeah. Like <laughs> I think yes. I think yeah. Buffy says that they're su- that they're they're too fit or something like that. Like, which first yeah. of all, I'm like, yes, of course we're going to, we're going to approach the female demons by, by um, commenting on their bodies and their physical fitness. On their bodies. And, you know, exactly. Naturally. But I also kind of love that we've got this group of, you know, powerful, powerful young women in Buffy, Faith and mm-hmm. Willow against this. Yes. I mean, they're called the sisterhood. Like really, like it's the most right. straw feminist you know, kind yes. of demon cult you could, I mean, really now. Right. So why don't I hate it? I don't it know. It seems like the kind of thing that I would really hate and be offended by. But for some reason, because it is wrapped up in this story about battling and winning over toxic masculinity, it works yeah, for Yeah, and about... Be- because it represents an accuracy in the way that, that powerful women are viewed. Well, and also because we're so deep in Xander's POV. Like, from the yeah. first shot, this is very much about how Xander sees the the people in his life um mm-hmm. you know he's and of course he's unconscious at that point but it's still right. like it's still very much about how xander sees the world um right so yeah like i'm okay with it as i'm okay with it as a look at xander's own insecurities mm-hmm. um 
But speaking of Sanderson Securities, <laughs> yes. there's a there's a very important there's a very very important thing that happens yes. in the Zeppo. Yes. Yes. With faith. This is big. This is huge. Yes. This is huge. So we have mm-hmm. we have this this encounter between Xander and Faith. First of all, poor Faith, who is still living right. at that horrible motel. What is going what on? Fuck? Why does nobody give her a place to like, live? Seriously. Seriously. Like, sh- no, I mean, and later on, when the mayor gives her an apartment it's and so sees to her sweet. needs, like, honestly, I don't blame Faith that no. much because the mayor, I mean, is dangerous and, and horrible and toxic in his own way, yeah. of course. Um, you know, evil, like evil. But <laughs> but at the same time, like, he's, he's actually taking care of her. And meanwhile, we've got... The Watchers Council, we've got, um, you know, Giles, we've got Joyce, we've got everybody is failing fate. I'm so mad at Joyce. In so many ways. I'm so mad yeah. at Joyce. Joyce isn't even is in this episode. That is a big house. <laughs> I know. Joyce is not Joyce even... is never there. She can have Joyce's oh. room. Like, Joyce isn't even in know, this episode. And, makes me so see... mad. <laughs> and in a couple of seasons, we're going to have Dawn's room, which apparently is just a storage room at this point. We never see it. But you're going to tell me that huge house has two bedrooms. It has a couch at the very least. Faith should be staying with Buffy. And she's not. She's living in this terrible, terrible motel room. But anyway, that's a discussion that we're going to be having in the future. I just had to rant anyway, about that. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes Go me ahead mad. With Faith and Xander. Faith yeah. and Xander makes me mad. But yeah. it does, the thing that it yes. does anchor us to in this episode is the the classism that I talked about earlier with Xander mm-hmm. and Jack O'Toole bringing yeah. Faith mm-hmm. in, you know, Faith's socioeconomic status is part of what enables this scene and this connection. Um, yeah. Which, again, interesting and problematic, but we're deep in Xander's mm-hmm. POV. And I think that there's there's something to that. I mean, I... I love the way this plays out. I love the way she says, hold me. And it's strictly practical. So she can pop her shoulder back into place. I mean, Mm -hmm. and both of their performances are just great. They are fantastically comfortable slash uncomfortable. And I'm curious about, did you notice the soundtrack in this not quite seduction scene? I noticed that it was a little more romantic than I kind of there's this had wanted it to there's be. this bell that chimes kind of uh-huh. rhythmically in the background and I oh. really want to say something about that but I don't know what that is. Well, I mean, this is a big moment, right? I mean, this is Xander's virginity and as much as virginity is actually Sexual a, a debut. construct, <laughs> a, you know, a construct more than anything else because it is based solely on the penetration of a man into a woman when sexual discovery is actually a, a, a less a single moment and more yeah. a spectrum of things as is typically the sexual case. Debut. Um, <laughs> never, sexual debut. Never been right? up this with is, people this before. This is his first time. <laughs> never been up with people. Exactly. So so, um, so we have this moment where he is and his view of it. And I think that's part of the reason why like the soundtrack is actually the the music in the background is romantic. We have this moment of cuddling afterward <laughs> before the music dies completely and she kicks him right out. Right. Which is hilarious. I love all of that because it shows so clearly how his perspective on this is so different from hers, yes. you know, because she just needs she just needs a little satisfaction. Yeah. She just needs a scratching post. And that is all he yeah, is. Yeah, it's strictly you know? practical. And, um, 
Um, it know. is practical. Xander yes. wanted to be of service, and now he gets to be of service. And now he is absolutely of service. And Xander, who is, you know, who we see earlier, you know, I played the flugelhorn, never got any trim, yeah. right? You know, who is objectifying this sexual, the sense of entitlement to sexual service from women actually ends up becoming the servicer yeah, be- for a woman. Yeah, he becomes the sex yeah. object. Um, yes. Which is really interesting. And the, you know, and I love that we go into the the actual sex such as it is with did i mention i'm having a very yeah. strange night like that's just <laughs> like that just speaks to identity so deeply in a way that that yes. just kind of guts mm-hmm. me but the actual sex i think this is very interesting yeah. is shown reflected in the tv screen in the motel room yeah and that mm-hmm. shot alone is so deeply meaningful as a statement about how television reflects and perpetuates cultural mm-hmm. ideas about, in this case, right. sex and sexuality, but really everything that, well, yeah. you know, it shows us, television shows us how we relate to each other. So here we have this picture yeah. in a picture of sexuality. And it's just, it's fascinating to me, but it's also a great internal Xander moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the line that leads us into the shot, did I mention I'm having a very strange night? He's Has he been giving her a soft no this whole time? Because he's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, she tells him to yeah. take off his pants and relax. And he says, those those are antithetical. Those are the antithetical. So that shot, <laughs> that shot, in yeah. that shot of the TV, I wonder if he's disassociating a little bit. Oh God, that's really interesting. Isn't that? Like, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it that way because Xander has, of course, been talking about, you know, getting action for a really, really long right. time. You know, and then when he does, he gets it in a way in which the tables are reversed. Right. You know, and he is actually the one who is being objectified and being used in that yeah. way. You know, um, but whether he's really okay with that or not because this is a thing that happens with this particular brand of you know if you want to call it date rape or whatever um there are a lot of different ways in which consent is violated and oftentimes um with the victim of that um they sometimes they don't say no but they just don't they just shut down because when somebody is pressuring you in that way Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes the response and the response during rape is often to shut down and just let it happen until it's over, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, which is what makes it uh, consent so complicated. Well, actually, it's not complicated. Get an enthusiastic yes or back the fuck right. off. Like, that's it. You right. know, um, and it is the responsibility of everybody in the room to be sure that the yes and the is enthusiastic, you know, and Xander's, uh, you know, uh, lack of a yes lack of uh, enthusiastic I mean he's responding because you respond yeah. because bodies respond to things mm-hmm. you know that does not necessarily mean that emotionally mentally consent is given right. um, and uh, and so I, I think that like this particular instance could you read it as a sexual assault as rape I mean yeah I think you could yeah well I'm not I'm not sure because without really understanding I mean, there's no there's no enthusiastic consent. So, I mean, I think that in and of itself, it, it puts us in this. Well, spectrum. and even I mean, even separate from 
rape and sexual assault. I mean, I Mm -hmm. certainly I'm not going to speak for the entire world, but I've certainly had sex where I realized maybe part of the way through that I was not as into it as I thought. You know, like, I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us have had sex when we maybe were not feeling so sure about it, even if we liked and cared about the person. (laughs) Um, Even if we were attracted to the person, it's a really Mm -hmm. it's a complex thing. And I think that, you know, whether or not you want to read this as as sexual assault um, on Faith's part, I think there's definitely a a disconnect for Xander between what he Mm -hmm. imagined his sexual debut would be like and what it actually ends up like what this experience actually feels like for him. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really And it's very complicated. And we do get into this binary language with it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is rape or it is not rape. It is sexual assault or, it, you know, like, but the thing is that there is this space. I think that I think that what it comes down to is that culturally we've been doing sex wrong. Oh, you know, oh, for um, sure. We're terrible. at oh, sex. absolutely. We're terrible. We've been doing it wrong. Because the thing is that, like, what needs to happen is a regular check-in for enthusiastic consent all the way along, you know, and that has to happen. And it is, um, and that is the responsibility of the parties involved. Um, But the way that we have been taught to treat sex is that if there is not a violent no, you know, that if somebody is just kind of going along with it, that it's okay. And I mean, the thing is, is that 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 happens, we don't know. So it's not like I see faith as an aggressor as i mean she's definitely the aggressor (laughs) she's definitely she is initiating you know she is asserting um but i don't see faith as being a a sexual assailant i don't Um, think so you know be uh, yeah and and so it's it's one of these these spaces where it, it is possible for faith to not be like an assailant here while at the same time Xander's kind of lack of enthusiasm a lack of of like being able to process everything that's happening while it's happening also creates in this experience for him you know a complicated experience yeah. like a complicated emotional mental physical experience yeah. for him um yeah and- so it's 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 yeah it's definitely, and I think that that's true. And I know that, like you know, there's probably going to be the oh yeah, sure, because Faith's a woman, she's not no as, as people of all are, genders, no, a man in this circumstance, yeah, yeah people absolutely. of all like, genders, a, a man in this can circumstance, you can understand assailants. Like that's not, mm-hmm. it's not about you know, it's right, but it's not that if this, if these, if these tables were turned and Faith's part was being played by a man. Well, and you that's know. an interesting question. Um, if you if you flip, if you if you if you gender, gender flip, flip this, this, would we still hold the faith character or not necessarily responsible? Or if you know, in the world where we don't do the the gay panic, and Xander is in fact mm-hmm. homosexual, and this is a man, and Faith is a man right. who is you know, don't worry. Like, I will, I'll tell you what to do, essentially. I'll steer I'll you steer around, you around the, curves. the curves. Like, and it's very, it's great. It's a great line for Faith. It's very cheeky. Yeah. This is, this is a wonderful scene for Faith in that it's very much in her character. And yeah. Eliza Dushku's performance is fantastic. Her just kind of like, mm-hmm. this is strictly practical yeah. for her. This is stri- like, yeah. it's fun. This is a great fun right. thing that she's going to do. Whereas Xander is having this like deep emotional <laughs> roller coaster yeah. that he's been on. Yeah. But if you, it is interesting to me to think about a scene like this one 
if you gender flip it or you change up the sexual orientations of mm-hmm. the folks involved or, you know, anything like that, then the power dynamic shifts. And we can see yes. and really what we see there is like where our biases are about like who mm-hmm. can be right? who who is capable of being raped and who is capable of raping. And, the you know, of course, the, of the real answer mm-hmm. is that people of all sexes and genders can rape and be raped. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Which is not, you know, and that is not me saying that this is a rape scene, just a I like the I like the time and attention that we, that yeah. is given to Xander's Xander's experience of this experience. And then, of course, you brought up the moment where they're lying in bed and he's kind of stroking her arm really sweetly, which is a nice Mm -hmm. parallel to the way that Willow strokes um, Werewolf Oz's fur. Like, it's this Mm -hmm. sweet, affectionate Mm -hmm. motion. But then, of course, abrupt cut, the music screeches to a halt and she throws him out. That was great. Got a shower. (laughs) And he's standing there holding his clothes in front yeah. of himself like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And yeah. then there's this moment, this quiet moment when Xander gets in the car and he's fully dressed now and he mm-hmm. seems kind of reflective. And he reaches into the yeah. back of the car for what he thinks are cake ingredients because he's looking for comfort food. I mean, does he want to get right, some maybe. oxytocin from a can of frosting? Maybe. It's like, it's so oh, sad. Cans of frosting are fantastic for situations right? just like mm-hmm. this. Yeah, yeah, a can of frosting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. And he comes up, you know, yeah. of course, he comes up with kerosene and bomb ingredients. It's such an interesting coda to. Um, a mm-hmm. man's sexual debut is violence, right? right. And then he says, right. and then we see him later on. He says, I can't believe I had sex. Okay, bombs. Like he just, <laughs> like, there is so there's much. There's so happening. much in that, that mm-hmm. light switch flip of train of right. thought. Like he's not even allowing himself the time to process mm-hmm. what has happened to him because of. I mean, because of the situation, like there's there's danger mm-hmm. happening, but also this, right. you know, lot bigger picture, this idea that men can just flip flop from sex to violence and right. that that is your role mm-hmm. as a man to right. do this thing without mm-hmm. that. The, well, they're often related yes, without processing, you know? without it's like it, it yeah. just it breaks my heart. I'm so sad. Like, I'm so sad about it all is, of it's it. So, it's so complicated. I mean, it really is a very complicated, very interesting, very psychologically and emotionally kind of crunchy story. Yeah. You know, I love the way this whole thing is constructed. And then, of course, you know, we've got Xander, right, with all of his stuff happening alongside this huge apocalyptic moment. You know, everybody's freaking right. out. Giles is freaked out at the cemetery. Willow's freaked out at the magic shop before she leaves. She says, I love you, Xander, in case they all right. die. Like she's, you know, um, Faith is unable. Faith, who is like one of the toughest badasses like in the entire universe of, of the Buffyverse, is unable to to beat this demon. And Xander comes in and saves her with his car. You yeah. know? Um, and then we get and this, I think, honestly, is one of my favorite things ever. Buffy and Angel's melodramatic scene. <laughs> They're both crying. Close your eyes. They pulled out, close your eyes. And I was like, 
TV show. What are you doing? This is a joke. And I am in my feelings. Like, I know nothing. We've had no context for all of this throughout the entire episode. The vast majority of the episode, we've been living inside Xander's wrestling with toxic masculinity. So all of this stuff that's been happening in the background is just stuff like we've seen this before. You know, this is like, this is same verse, second verse, same as the first. Yeah. You know, not our first rodeo with this. So this is stuff we've seen with, I love you. I love you. I can I can maybe give you time and I can't, I can't watch, watch you, you die. die. <laughs> I know, like all of this stuff, it is a joke. I am in my feelings. Oh, and let me just go ahead and play this for everybody for a moment so that they can understand how this feels. Love you. I love you. This kills me. I watched this scene. Not and I'm that. practically crying. Don't talk to me like with that. With no context. You may be ready to go, but I am not ready to lose you. Okay, I this is not my fight. And if you won't do it my way, then you're... Xander <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> clears his throat. The music this, um, stops. There's this... Uh... <laughs> this is probably a bad time. It's probably yeah. a bad time. <laughs> It kills me. But when they start playing close your eyes in that scene. Yeah. I'm dying. I'm dying in that moment. And I'm crying. And I'm like, no, Buffy, Angel, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's a great counterpoint to the music that comes in when Xander is being chased through yes. the high school. Yes. You know, they're chasing. And, ch- and it's a very like, there's it's this. It's a Keystone Cops kind of comedy totally. chase well, music. Yeah. Marx Brothers, too. I mean, right. the, the title yes. of the episode yes. is a reference Zepo. to the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. But it has that very like, yep, da, 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 yep. kind of. We're running through the school. There's this great there's this great string um leitmotif that comes in yeah. i think it first comes in when jack adopts xander as his his car guy yes and it continues throughout whenever there's you know xander zombie bro um mm-hmm. antics and it's it so changes the tone of everything yes. that's happening because this is like legit peril. Yes. At the end, they're running through the high school. There's a bomb. There's sisterhood of Jay demons everywhere. <laughs> the the hellmouth monster it's, has, has grown. come up through the yes. It has grown. It has come up through it's, the floor again. <sighs> like what and, they're gonna have to do to fix this, and also like you know, for no small part of this, something that that we need to kind of like address is that we are coming off of helpless giles betrayed buffy last fucking week and so when we have this moment at the end right where they're all sitting outside and like no one will ever know what we did and then buffy looks at giles and says that was the bravest thing i've ever seen you know he sacrificed himself or you know attempted to sacrifice himself to save everybody um yeah all of this is just it's so incredibly effective and works for me on both levels, on Xander's level and on this big story level. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> but, but using close your eyes, let me just say, if you play close your eyes at any point, I don't care what's going on in that scene. I am going to cry. It is like instant Pavlovian response for me. Oh, God. Don't play that song. It's mean. It's emotionally manipulative and mean. Oh, <laughs> I mean, television and visual storytelling in general is great for playing with our feelings. Yes. 
this is I mean it's supposed to be emotionally manipulative that's right. what stories do but still <laughs> close your eyes is like unfair <laughs> god damn that piece of music kills me every time all right there's one more thing that I wanted to talk about about in this week's episode and this is this episode was written by Dan Weber right and Dan Weber also wrote like one of my favorite episodes in the entire run of Buffy um, which is Lover's Walk which we had a few weeks back right and one of the things the Zeppo is really good Uh, Lover's Walk of course is a work of staggering genius you know wonderful wonderful stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things that has always happened for me is that I've always looked at these two episodes in season three and I'm like why is Dan Weber not a staff writer you know right. on the show like what the hell happened that he wasn't you know brought on um, and it wasn't until recently I was watching a live stream done by Ian Martin Ian Martin uh, Passion of the Nerd and some of you may remember he uh, stepped in to, to pinch it for Noel during um, during amends thank you um, Ian <laughs> yes thank you Ian it was wonderful and the response to that was fantastic so everybody absolutely loves Ian um, and he did a great great job Although you were missed, Noel, during that week. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, sure. No, <laughs> you were very much. Very much. No, I had Noel do the Patreon ask for that week because uh, because I couldn't stand not having her voice in one of the one of the still pretty. So she, Noel oh. has appeared in every single episode and will as long as I have any say of it. Um, but anyway, so so Ian was talking about like he looks at the uh, it was it was Lover's Walk that he was talking about and um, he watches the extra textual stuff. I don't engage with the extra textual stuff. I don't look at the DVD extras. I don't I don't look at uh, interviews with writers or cast or um, or Joss Whedon. Um, I don't read articles behind the scenes. I don't do any of that stuff because when I look at these stories, I want to just be talking about the story itself. Um, but one thing I do do, which actually is extra textual, is look at who the writers are because there are certain things that certain writers do. There is a very Whedonian, I think, influence in Lover's Walk. Um, mm-hmm. You can you can feel Whedon's fingerprint on that episode. And Ian was talking about it and he had had read something or watched one of the DVD extras or something where Joss Whedon was talking about how he had basically gone in and like rewritten Lover's Walk, which of course makes sense to me because it is very Whedonian. Um, on this episode, Jane Espenson and Doug Petrie are story editors and they are story editors for all of season three. Um, but this episode to me has an Espensonian thumbprint on it. Like it feels very Jane Espenson to me, even though Dan Weber wrote it. And so I don't know what happened. I don't know like how all of this stuff shook out. Um, and of course, it is impossible for me to say and I don't have any right to say anything. But one of the things that I kind of realized is that, you know, on a TV show, while um, you will have certain episodes, like certain episodes written by Jane Espenson, by Doug Petrie, by Marty Noxon, Tim Minear, um, you know, you can feel like their kind of style very much influencing stories that they've written. Um, at the same time, I feel Espenson, I feel Noxon, I feel Petrie, I feel Minear, I feel Whedon at certain points in other episodes because all TV episodes are written by the entire staff, you know, and somebody coming in, a certain number of episodes are required by the Writers Guild every season for a certain number of episodes to be written freelance. And if you get a a script that is written freelance that needs, you know, like the kind of attention that the TV staff will need, sometimes I think that can get very highly rewritten um, because it is very difficult as a freelance writer when you're not on staff, when you're not in the room all the time to get all of the beats absolutely right to understand all the characters as well as you need to and that kind of thing um so anyway i always have this thing where i like i don't go extra textual i don't Mm -hmm. do it you know 
because mm-hmm. I don't want it to influence my read. But it has influenced my read in the past when I've talked about Dan Weber. And Ian bringing that up, you know, kind of gave me a broader context for every single uh, script that is written for any TV show is written by the whole room. Right. You know, um, yeah. after a while, you get a feel for the styles of very particular writers. Um, but the whole room is involved in every single episode. So um, so my railing against the system that kept <laughs> Dan Weber from getting a full time job. I, thought they, I mean, who knows? Dan Weber, like uh, clearly a good writer. These are two really great episodes may have gone off to do something else and, and been hired by another show. I have no idea. Um, but uh, but anyway, these are all considerations when talking about who the writers are. But I have to say that Lovers Walk to me felt like a Whedon script and the Zeppo feels like a Jane Espenson script to me. And I don't know how much Jane Espenson might've gone in and like retooled some of this. Um, but, uh, but it feels very, very Espensonian to me. And I, I kind of love that voice in, in this episode in the Zeppo. And I yeah. think there's so much stuff that has just been kind of brilliantly done in this episode and the deeper I look at it the more I I really really appreciate it and like it yeah and now that you mentioned that there are several jokes mm-hmm. and lines yes. that feel very, very much like like Jane Espenson's writing to me you know O'Toole mm-hmm. will macrame your face that has yes. Espenson mm-hmm. all over it um but my understanding of television writing and how that works is very much what you described that you yeah. bring, mm-hmm. you know, you bring folks on and their name may be the name that right. appears in the credits as written by, but mm-hmm. a um, an executive story editor can rewrite anything. A show mm-hmm. creator can rewrite anything. Can rewrite so it's, and often does. They yeah. often do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, I mean, it's one of the, the sort of weird things about television writing credits is yeah. that it will mm-hmm. say written by and give you maybe one or two names when the reality is that not every line or every story beat yeah. comes from the person whose name um, is credited. And, Appears on it. And yeah. the extent to which, like, I, there is a certain amount of every single script. No script, I think, in a TV writer's room, my, this is my understanding of it, is is ever entirely written by one person. It's always the entire story beats. The story beats are broken by the entire room. You know, somebody goes off to type it. You know, um, yeah. but and and then they will bring their own, you know, flavor to these to these episodes. I, I see Doug Petrie's, you know, fingerprint really strongly. Marty Noxon's perspective, Jane Espenson's sense of humor, Whedon's emotional manipulation. Um, these are all things, which is what I love them for. That's what stories are like. But Whedon will emotionally manipulate the fuck out of everybody. And that is what he does. He's good it. at it. And it's why we love him. Um, yep. But but you see all of those things, um, you know, and, and they're all kind of like different different things that you see after a while. You kind of get used to certain people's styles. Um, but for the most part, like every every script is written by everybody, you know, and there will be a Jane Espenson joke in a script that's not written by her. But I know it's Jane Espenson because I can feel it. <laughs> there will be a Marty Noxon hit, you know. Um, and yeah, so there's there's really, really good stuff going on here. So my my railing about, you know, Dan Weber not getting um, a a full-time job on Buffy. I take it all back. I understand why. It's fine. I understand. Um, All right. So, Noelle, what are you wearing? Buffy owns a lot of heavy coats for someone who lives in Southern California. I I mean, it is like 
January, February at this point. But yeah, still, but, yes. mm-hmm. but but come still. on. Yes. Come on. I mean, really. But I like the way that they make her look very official. Like No, they do. She's mm-hmm. she is doing slayer business in her official yes. And her, uh, and her heavy coat. Yeah. Her heavy coat. No, I don't have a lot of um, costuming notes for this episode. Yeah. Because it doesn't really end up being about that. But you have some hair notes that I'm I do. very okay. interested in. I came up with this a couple of years ago, this curly haired Buffy theory that every time Buffy has curly hair, we're in a bizarro world. You know, um, and this or a world that has been altered by magic or something has happened to make things weird. It's a weird episode. Um, and this is this will actually hold true for most of the run. There's like one or two where Buffy just has curly hair for no reason. And it's a completely normal episode. Um, but for the most part, we get curly hair Buffy and um, and uh, beer bad. We get curly hair Buffy and. Uh, something blue, something and blue. Halloween, yeah. like ah, all of these. Awesome. Whenever Buffy has curly hair, <laughs> the world is weird. Um, and so we're going to be following this theory throughout. But I noticed Buffy had crimped hair, and this is one of the first times. I mean, aside from Halloween, right? Which she was wearing a wig, but it was curly right. hair, right? Um, aside from Halloween, I think this is the first time that we've had you know Buffy's actual hair be curly, and of course, it is a weirdo, bizarre world now. Not in every Bizarro World episode does she have curly hair, but in the in the ones where she has curly hair. So, like, not everything, all squirrels are furry, but not everything is furry as a squirrel, right? Um, so... She's uh she uh, she just has her curly hair in this episode. And so it's it's interesting. I'm gonna try to like keep track of it and see. But I know there's like I had this whole theory and we were running through Buffy and I'm like, yeah, I've got it, I've got it. Curly hair means bizarre world, and then we'd have, you know, uh, a curly haired Buffy episode with nothing particularly weird happening in that episode. But I'm gonna keep trying. I'm gonna see if I can read something <laughs> into curly hair Buffy every single time. Um all right, Noel, so what's your girl power moment of the week? Um I don't think that this is a big win for feminism or anything, but I really enjoy Faith popping her own shoulder back into place. (laughs) That is badass. That is badass. That's just great. She just knows exactly what to do and just I like I like Faith, you know, taking the initiative with the sex. I mean, of course, you know, we do have some questions about, you know, the enthusiastic consent part of it, which she which she fails to obtain. Um, But but overall, like, you know, I mean, I like that. She's like, yeah, that's great. Got a shower, you know, Um, so good. (laughs) I think it's I think it's okay. I think it's okay. Um, All right. So what's your favorite part? My favorite part is the exchange between Giles and Buffy and Willow about jelly donuts. (laughs) It's uh, brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant. Uh, Did you have all the jelly? Always the one who says, "Let's have jelly in the mix." Let's yeah. have a jelly in the mix. <laughs> and then Willow just completely caves and says, "We're sorry." Buffy had three. Throwing <laughs> Buffy under the donut bus. I mean, come on. Right? But Buffy right. Buffy slays. Buffy is supposed to have a lot of donuts. But it was so great. I love, I and I love that sweet Xander made a point of getting four. Yeah, jelly donuts because yes. presumably he knows that Giles yes. likes them and Buffy likes them and Willow likes them. Yes, and I'm just yes. like that's just so dear. But it was but Willow, incredibly sweet. Willow throwing Buffy under the jelly donut bus is yes, like so <laughs> right. <laughs> And 
Giles being so miffed. He's yes. so miffed. We've talked yes. about this. With the jelly know, We've talked about <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. His whole, his whole affect says... Oh, not again. <laughs> yeah. When you're fighting evil, you need to have your snacks. You know yes. what I'm saying? Yeah, you, yes. Very important. And I like that donuts are the the go-to yes. fuel for research mode and saving the yeah. world. I Absolutely. feel that. Yeah. Although, you know, I do have a concern. All those donuts, all those rare books... Like I'm uh, sure that yeah. Giles Giles must have a whole thing where he's like, No, wash your hands before you touch <laughs> my books after the donuts. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know Giles, Dad Giles is going around with like napkins and wet wipes and oh, everything after the Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. No, those books are serious. I'm surprised that they don't have to wear little white gloves when they deal with the books. <laughs> but you know, when you in the middle of an apocalypse, you got you do what you can, you know. Right, um, right, right. Desperate times. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite part, Lonnie? Oh, God, I love Xander at the end. I love yeah. Xander when he confronts Jack and Jack's like, well, you're going to die, too. And he's like, yeah, OK, I like the quiet. You know, he oh. is completely prepared to die to save everybody else, you know, and he's holding he's calling Jack's bluff. You know, yeah. he's like, I'm in your way. You're not going to be able to get out of here in time. I don't like your chances. You know, so do you want to be do you want to be regular dead or do you want to be blown up, getting picked up by a janitor dead? You know, yeah. and I just I love Xander's confidence. I love Xander. This is this transformative moment. This is the inflection point for, you know, early Xander, super problematic to later Xander, who is also problematic, but maybe less so and in very specific instances. Um, so actually, I just really like that. I like that moment for him. All right, that's it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Noella Loud and use the hashtag #StillPretty. Or you can keep Chipperish Media going to the tune of a dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat and Discord where you can hang out with me and Noelle and all the Chipperish patrons who are having a very strange night. You can also show your support by giving Still Pretty a great review on Apple Podcasts or by telling your friends about the show or by wrestling in as gay a way as you care to make it. That's right. We'll be back next time with Bad Girls, the 14th episode of season three. Until then, there was no part of that that wasn't fun. Bye.